Let's pray. Jesus, uh, we, I, we need you so much. We need to have spiritual eyes and spiritual ears because carnal minds cannot understand the things of, of the Spirit. They are fighting against it. And Lord, when your spirit demands for us to surrender our lives and surrender our hearts, our flesh rebels and says, I deserve life. I deserve my wishes and my dreams and my lusts and my passions. And Lord, your spirit calmly says, I demand surrender. Lord, we want to give you that surrender openly right now. We want to see what your scriptures have for us. Lord, open them. Open our hearts and open our eyes and our ears. Lord, give me the words that you would have your people hear today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jacob is now 147 years old. And he's about to die. And Jacob has not what you would call consistent in his life as a Christian or as a follower of God. He has had ups and downs and ups and downs like us a lot, right? And so now he's at 147 years old, which is just ungodly. I mean, very old. And he has reached the end. He is, he is kind of, God has restored some things in his family. He's pretty excited about that. And now God is going to use him to speak some blessings into his family, to speak to his family, to kind of give them all the wisdom that he has. But he's going to speak supernaturally. This is like a, a spiritual gift given to Jacob. And he spends his whole life kind of up and down with God, but he kind of gets to the very end and he's just like open for what God would have him to do. We don't have to wait till we're 147. In fact, none of you are going to make it to that. I guarantee you're all going to die before that. We don't have to wait until then to trust God to use us in a spiritual way. We can be used now. But let's see how God uses Jacob when he's finally ready to say, you know what, I'm not in control. I'm here to do what you want me to do. Then God gives him this spiritual revelation. Let's see. Now it came to pass after these things in Genesis 48 that Joseph was old. Indeed, your father is, was told, excuse me, that indeed your father is sick. And he took with him, him with his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on his bed. So here, Jacob is super old, laying in bed all day, blind, as we'll see. And Joseph is told he's sick, he's about to die. This guy's really old. So he takes his two sons and, he's, and he brings them to him. And, and it's amazing to see what a visit can do to old Jacob. I mean, he strengthens himself. He's kind of encouraged by hearing that Joseph, his son, is coming. And so if that's a word from the Lord for you, and during this time when we don't have anchor groups, it's designed so you can have a break, but not just to flesh out and waste your time on yourselves, but to think about who could I visit? Who could I spend some time with? Because people are very encouraged when we visit. And don't think that, well, I'm just lowly old me, Eeyore. I am. You, God could use your visit. You know, he doesn't need you to talk. Talking gets us in big trouble a lot of times. Just come and listen, love someone, say, I mean, God loves you, and maybe read a scripture to him or don't. Just talk, and God could really encourage them. Well, verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. So Jacob, this old, old man, 
he brings his son in, Joseph, who's basically king of the world. I mean, he's like Aladdin, whatever. He, he, is, he is up there. But Jacob, he's old, and he says to him, I know who I am. My son, I know who I am. And who I am is someone that God, it's related to God. He appeared to me in the land of Luz. That was the time when God first appeared to him and told him who he was. God said, I am the God who will save you. And you need to remember that you need to sacrifice animals, kill animals, and have blood cover your sin. So that's when Jacob learned about sacrifice. That's when Jacob got saved, you could say. And Jacob, finally, at the end of his life, he's like, my only thing that matters to me is that I know that I'm saved. That's the only thing that matters. I have messed up so many times, but I'm so grateful that I know who I am. My identity is fixed. I used to be Jacob and Israel, and I don't know who I am, kind of schizophrenic about my life and where I get my value. Is it that I'm a husband? Is it that I'm a parent? Is it that I work hard and make a lot of money? Is it that I live in America and I'm not whatever? Is it that I'm in Denver and not Pueblo? You know, I, our identities can be in so many different things. But Jacob, he's done with that. He says, I'm finally accepting what I've heard the word tell me. I finally am totally embracing it. The word told me a long time ago that I am, I've been accepted by Jesus Christ, that, that his sacrifice covered. And you know what? I'm finally embracing that, that that's the only thing that matters. I'm a child of God. And because God told me who I am, God's always known what I'm doing, I don't, have, I don't need to wonder anymore. I know who I am. So that's how he starts his conversation with his son. He's saying, Jake, Joseph, I know what's been going on with me, and it's all to God's glory. Now verse 5, and, your two, and now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, who you beget after them, shall be yours, and they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So, when you first read this, you're like, this is a weird old man <coughs> stealing someone's children. <laughs> totally bizarre, and we need to call CDC, social services, right? Right away. You can't just steal someone's two kids. But that's not what's going on, okay? What he's doing is he is basically kind of adopting his sons. Not that he wants to raise them. He's 140. He couldn't change a diaper if he wanted to. Plus, they're probably older anyway. But he does, it's not, has anything to do with raising them or being their dad. He's adopting them, meaning he's accepting them. And he's saying they're going to be just like my two sons when it comes to an inheritance. So basically what he's saying is, Joseph, you, you're entitled to one share of my inheritance, God's, God's work in my life. But now you're going to get two shares. I'm going to divide your, your tribe of Joseph into two, Manasseh and Ephraim. Um, so we see that this jo- tribe of Joseph is going to be split. So as these 12 sons of Israel grow in their, uh, in their populations, that, that's how they keep track of who's who in Israel is by these 12 tribes. And that's how you get to know. And so these Manasseh, the, Manasseh's children are going to be the tribe of Manasseh. Ephraim's children are going to be the tribe of Ephraim. Um, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Verse 7. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, uh, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? 
And, he's, and Joseph is like, I thought you just adopted them. How do you not know who these are? Well, as we're going to find out, his eyes were bad. So Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom, the, whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Told you. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. He's just so excited. So Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right and brought them near him. So Joseph arranges them so that Manasseh could receive, receive the firstborn blessing. As we have studied many times in the past, the firstborn child was supposed to be the greatest child. Uh, it was the one that got all the attention, all the glory, all the inheritance. It was, it was a big deal to be the firstborn. So that's Joseph is just following along with the culture saying, all right, firstborn, you're over here, secondborn over here. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Isaac and Abraham walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So here, Israel, Jacob, gives this blessing, saying God is going to bless you too, and, and he's just saying that you're going to carry on the partnership with God that I have begun, that really Abraham and Isaac had begun. This partnership was called this relationship, this blessing. It was this partnership of we are going to be the light of God to the entire world. We're going to share who God is to the entire world. And I'm going to, I want to use you to. And he points out this person, this, this, this angel, he says. Who do you think this angel is? Jesus. That's the answer in church, right? If you're in church and they ask you a question, the answer, you can just say Jesus and, and you'll, you'll get an A+. Plus, no matter what the question is, basically. <coughs> Sunday school tips there. So he says this angel is the, is the way that this blessing and this partnership happens is through a relationship with this angel. And what does this angel do? He redeemed me from all evil, Israel says. Wow, what an amazingly accurate description of who Jesus is and what he does way back in Genesis. I mean, we've seen a lot about Jesus, but this is one of the most clear, clear pictures and, and statements about who Jesus is and what he does. He redeems us from all evil. In Christianity, we have kind of, over the centuries, divided this up and said, it's the, he's freed us from the penalty of sin. You don't have to pay the price anymore. You don't have to go to hell for eternity. Then he's also freed us from the what? The power of of sin, the power of sin in your life. You can, you're, you're not dominated by sin anymore. God can convict you of a sin and you have the power through Jesus Christ to overcome that sin. And so here, that's, that's him saying he's redeemed me from all evil. Not only the evil 
of the punishment of sin, but the penalty, the power of sin, all of it. He's freed me. And so he, here's Israel saying, you guys are taking this message of this angel to the whole world. Now, over time, we're going to see the Jews forget that they're partners with God. And they get very worldly-minded. And they think about their, their own life and what they want to do. And their partnership with God becomes so weak that God says, I can't use you anymore. And he sends them into captivity to hopefully get their hearts back to him. And it works for a while. They come back from captivity and they have a new revived heart to partner with God in the work he's doing in this world. But then by the time Jesus comes, the, the leadership of the country was totally apostate, totally they, they thought they were working for God, partnering with God, but really they were keeping people away from God, right? And you remember Jesus walking into the temple and Jesus shows up and he, he, he looks around and he's like, I hate all of this. And he makes whips and he starts yelling at people and whipping them around and saying, my house, my father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer. You were supposed to encourage people to come in and you guys are a bunch of jerks keeping people away, charging them money for sacrifices and everything God set up to be free, you guys are jerks. And that's why Jesus just had to end the whole system. So we get now to verse 17. Now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, but for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused him and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a great people or become, shall become a people and he shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob, he responds to Joseph. So Joseph we've seen as a great guy all the time, right? But here he kind of doesn't understand what's going on. And, and Jacob, he's like, I'm not as senile as you think I am. Like, I'm blind, but I have been trust, learned to trust the Lord, and he has given me specific wisdom about this. And I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm telling you, this is real. The younger shall be greater. Jacob is just getting started prophesying. I think this is like Jacob's like entrance into like supernatural ministry. He's just like so excited about this. Ephraim did become the greater tribe by far in in history as we look at what eventually happens with the tribes of Israel. Um, They they go into Egypt and they come out into the promised land and then a few hundred years go by with the judges and then David becomes king. And and God's really super happy with David, but then uh, two generations later, his grandson becomes king. And, and everyone's super mad at his grandson. And so the 10 northern tribes split away from Judah down in the south, which was David's tribe. And so the, the country is then divided into two nations. The northern nation is called Israel. The southern nation is called Judah. And it's so crazy because the northern nation even though it was called Israel and it was 10 nations, the biggest tribe in that entire section was Ephraim. In fact, many times in the Bible, when God is referring to the whole, all of the 10 northern nations, he just calls them by the name Ephraim. So this prophecy became very true. 
Um, but as we've been seeing, it seems like the younger is always getting blessed by God. Why is that? Why it is with Jacob and Esau, why Jacob was the younger? Why was he blessed? We, be, we become kind of, it, this causes us some frustration with God because we're like, God, you're, you're not following the rules. The younger, the, the answer is pride. The younger people the, seem to have a better chance of being humble. Humble. Society wants the stronger to be blessed. Darwin does. God blesses the weak, the small and the broken, the gentle. His power can fill the empty cup. You can't squish more water into a cup that's already filled. It has to be empty for you to fill it up. So now verse 20. So he blessed them that day and said, by you Israel will bless. Meaning we're going to partner with God. We're going to serve God. We're going to be light to the world. May God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh is going to be said. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. God's ways don't always make sense. But they're a blessing anyways. He knows what he's going to do. He knows what he's doing in your life. Even if it doesn't make sense, even if you don't understand why you have to go through so many trials, why he wants you so broken. I mean, you're, you're like, I'm broken enough. And God's thinking, ah, not yet. And you're like, well, who decides when I'm broken? And God's like, I do. And you're like, I don't like your decisions. And he's like, okay, I understand, but I'm still God. And this one really, this decision to make Ephraim greater than Manasseh, it really turns out to be a blessing to the nation of Israel. And for us, when we finally admit that we're weak and we're the younger brother, that we're the one that doesn't have it all together, we get to experience the true blessings of God in our life as well. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I am dying, but God will be with you. And will bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite, Amorite with my sword and my bow. Very interesting statement right here. We'll get into that. But I want to remind you guys of Galatians 2.20. And you all have Galatians 2.20 memorized. So I was just going to remind you of it. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jacob here, he says, I die. I die. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Jacob says, but God, he lives. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, but Christ lives in me. What we see here is Jacob echoing or foreshadowing what Paul would teach almost exactly 4,000 years early. Because he lives, I have the victory. Do you have struggle with sin? That's like the battle of going into the promised land. That's like the battle that, that Jacob has experienced, our struggles. And when we have a struggle with, with sin, the answer is not for you to become stronger that's not the answer. Try harder, as we say so often. Don't try harder. The answer is to die 
My bad pastor wants me to die. Your flesh, yes. We have to die to our own efforts, our own trying to fix ourselves. God says, stop. You can't fix yourself, but my son, my angel who will take care of all sin, he, but God lives, but God, God will live in you and give you the victory that you, that you want so badly inside, the victory over sin. So because he, of his risen life, because Jesus rose from the dead, we can't lose with him. When he's inside us, we cannot lose to sin. Sin cannot have victory over us. It cannot dominate our lives. When we are like the younger brother and we say, I have nothing to bring. I am worthless. I'm addicted. I am poor spiritually. I'm bankrupt spiritually. I got nothing to bring. Father, forgive me by Jesus Christ and fill me with his life. That is the gospel. And that is what Jacob knows in his heart right now. He knows it. God's alive. And then he says this crazy thing in verse 22. He says, and I took this land from the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Check this out. He never did that. He never, ever took any land from the Amorites. In, f in fact, Jacob was awful at everything having to do with swords and bows. His brother Esau, he could take a property or two. But Jacob, he would rather cook a cake, bake a cake, clean some carpets. That's, that was Jacob's speed, all right? So why does Jacob make this awesome statement? Of, oh, I took this land from the Amorites with my bow and my sword. Because he is, again, he's speaking prophetically. He's speaking a prophecy. But it was crazy. It, you know, he was never a fighter. He was terrible with the sword and worse with the bow. But he could devastate a lamb with some mint jelly and some seasonings. <laughs> but what Jacob is doing is he's looking towards the promises of God. God had already told him, I've given you this land. And Jacob, Israel, is finally in the place where he's like, I believe it. I believe if God said it, it's as good as done. And so Jacob here, he's, he's teaching his son to relate to God's promises as if they're already accomplished. He's giving Joseph the secret to all of spirituality, all of following God, which is if God says it, believe it. It's his promise and you can already stand on it. I've heard it said, God's promises are like structures already formed. God has promised you that he will sanctify you. He will give you victory over sin. He will, he will teach you, and he will guide you, and he will provide for you. All these are promises that God has made, and you can step out in them. If God's called you to something, step out into it like it's already done, like the Amorites are already beaten. Do you want to speak prophetically to other people in your life? Do you want to prophesy into the lives of your friends and family? Paul tells us prophecy is the greatest gift. It's amazing. Here's how to do it. Number one, tell them the promises of God. If you don't know those, read your Bible. 
but tell them the promises of God. Someone is going through something, you tell them the promises of God. God will provide. Confess your sins and you'll be cleansed and forgiven. Tell them the promises of God. Number two, talk about the promises as if they're already done. Just like Jacob does here. Talk about the promises like they're already there. Number three, trust that God is living in you. Jacob, he started this whole conversation saying, I know who I am. I know that God spoke to me. God now lives with me. For us, that's so true. Know that God is living in you. And it's not you who are trying to just bless someone. It's not you who had the idea to encourage someone or to prophesy into their life. It's God partnering with you to bless that person. God wants to bless that person. And you are just deciding to partner with him. You're deciding to be what Israel should have been. And that's how you can prophesy into someone's life. Jacob here, his prophecies are like, it's like magic. They come true. Why? Because he surrendered to God. He's not just making stuff up. God is speaking through him and God is blessing these individual people in the way that they need to be blessed. You have the responsibility, everyone in this room, of sharing God's promises with the people of God and others by reminding them that God is with them and will keep his word and his ways. It will happen. So here's God's promises for you. And you might need to start basic and say, God promises in the gospel that Jesus Christ will forgive you if you trust in him and believe in what he did on the cross. And so now we get to chapter 49, where J these are Jacob's cryptic prophecies to all of his other sons. He's going to tell a story of the history of the world through the lens of Israel, God's people. So Jacob here, he... He kind of graduates quite quickly into doctorate-level prophecy stuff right here. This is a very difficult portion of Scripture, and I'm going to try to make it as easy and understandable as we can. I want to say that there is a historical application and context to each one of these prophecies to these uh, 12 brothers, which means in the past, there were things that lined up with these, and these were all true historically. But we're also going to look at the prophetic. We're going to kind of focus today on the prophetic nature of each one of these prophecies and how it tells the story of the nation of Israel, not just, um, not just the physical people, but the entire nation and how it will progress. And we'll see. There's a lot even future to our day that we're going to discover in here. So we get to verse 1. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. So he's saying the point of what I'm going to talk about now, what God has given me to tell you guys, has to do with the last days. And that's, that um, term is used only uh, 14 times in the Old Testament. And every time it speaks, it's speaking of the last days of planet Earth. It's, it's introducing prophecy. And Israel, as a nation, has a huge role to play, and it's how we can kind of understand what prophecy is as far as the Bible goes. The Bible wants us looking at the nation of Israel. It's cryptic. I mean, we have to kind of understand, but it's from God. So it's true. And he get, did it this way in a very specific way. Because if he used cultural things, if he used anything else, people could discount it and say, well, that's not true because of this, and that's not true because of that. But we have Jews alive today. And we have the nation of Israel alive today, and we know their history. 
So that's how we can know that God at this time was giving us a roadmap for the future of the world. And we'll see it played out right here. Verse 2, gather together and hear, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. It's funny, he calls himself by both his names in one sentence. Isn't that funny? I think that's cool because he's saying, with all my faults, I'm Jacob and I'm Israel. I've been up and down. I'm changed and I know God, and I am choosing to partner with him right now. See, you guys don't have to be perfect for God to use you. Just decide that you want to be used by the Lord. Serve. You don't have to be perfect. Just know that you're partnering with God. It's not me doing this. I just want to serve the Lord. And he's going to, again, tell them the story of the world through the lens of this people. So first we see in this first prophecy a disappointing people. So if you're taking notes, verses 3 through 4 is a disappointing people. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, the excellency and dignity and the excellency of power. Oh, and I, I bet Reuben is hearing this and he's just like, all right, I like the way this is going, all right? And then he says, verse 4, unstable as water. You shall not excel because... You went up to your father's bed, and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Whoa. So Reuben, a few chapters ago, we studied that he took advantage of a family situation, and 40 years later, it's coming back to haunt him. He thought, oh, everyone forget that I slept with my dad's wife. (laughs) And he didn't forget. See, the sin will cause you to be less than what you could have been. And that's what happened with Reuben. He's like, Reuben, you had every chance to be amazing. And you blew it with sin. You were unstable, and he says, you will not excel. And so what happens with the history of Israel is they will come up out of the land of Egypt as a mighty people, strong and I mean, no army, but God is with them doing miracles to kill all their enemies anyway. I mean, they're just, they have every chance to succeed. And so Moses goes up on the mountain, and what's the first thing they do? Dance naked around a calf. Sexual sin everywhere. So, it, it plays on exactly right here. They sin, sin, and sin some more. Golden calves, fornicating, other gods... And it's funny because no prophet, no judge, no king ever came from the tribe of Reuben in history. God wanted to partner with this nation to reach the whole world with his light and love, but their constant unstableness and sin led to ineffectiveness. I mean, some people were reached by Israel. Some people heard the Queen of Sheba. All kinds of other people came, and there were many people that came from around the world that knew that Israel was the place you could have a relationship with God. But... For the most part, they weren't used nearly as often as they could have been. Is that the story of your life? That God wanted to partner with you. God wanted to use you. But because of sin, it's not happening. You're not being used as you could have been. Well, Jesus can restore and cleanse. So come back to him with all your heart today. Don't. Get to the end of your life and be surprised like Reuben. He waited 40 years to really get right with God. 
to understand what the penalty and punishment of his sin was. Jesus would have taken away that angel could cleanse him from all, sin, all evil as well. But he waited so long, he, ineffective. So you have the disappointing people as far as history goes, prophecy. Now we see a dispersed people. Look at verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their, their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. It will divide, I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So remember their story. Uh, their sister, Dinah, D- D- yeah, Dinah, was attacked and, and raped, and, and so they worked out this situation where they convinced all the people of Shechem to get circumcised. And as the men are all laying around circumcised and in pain, Simeon and Levi go in and kill them all. Murder them. And it speaks of self-will and self-dependency. They came up with their own solution to a problem that they were going through. And this self-will, self-dependency leads to scattering And in the nation of Israel, that's exactly what happened. We already talked about it once today. After David, his grandson, becomes king, he's a real jerk, and the nation of Israel leaves and leaves Judah, and so the nation is divided or scattered because of their self-will. They wanted to be great and powerful, and this great power, it just scatters. So that's why he speaks to two brothers right here. He's prophesying about how the nation is going to be split. But after they're scattered, there's good news. And that's where we get now to the tribe of Judah. And this is the section of a delivered people. Verses 8 through 12, a delivered people. Judah, you are he of whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He shall wash his garments in wine and his clothes shall be the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Okay, so the world looks at this and is like, this is the weirdest bunch of words put together I've ever heard in my life. Why does it say all this weird stuff? It's amazing because this all speaks of who? I told you that's the right answer. You can say it with confidence. Jesus, all right? Jesus came from what tribe? Judah, Judah, all right? So after Israel splits and they go into captivity, not once but twice. It's amazing with the two brothers' prophecy before. But they go into into captivity, they come back, then they wait 400 years, and then Jesus comes. This is a a leadership prophecy, we'll call it. 
And it took uh, almost 640 years to fulfill, uh, firstly, with David being from the tribe of Judah, and then almost 1,600 years uh, for Jesus to come and really fulfill this prophecy. So how do we know that this is Jesus? Well, he was from the tribe of Judah. He was a leader. He destroys his enemies. Talks about that in this prophecy. He has no problem destroying his enemies. He is a lion, which speaks of a king being unstoppable. That's what Jesus was. Now, this plays in a little bit to what we're going to talk about on Easter with Jesus being the king of the world. How was he unstoppable? He got killed on a cross. We'll talk about that. And so he's a lion. Have you ever heard of the term, the lion of the tribe of Judah? And that's speaking of Jesus. That's actually his title in the book of Revelation when we see it, when we see it there. But he says a really interesting thing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Shiloh comes from the Hebrew word for peace, but it's, a, it's peace personified. It's peace as a person. And that is Jesus. You guys are so good. He brings peace. Josephus says that the rabbis understood this text. And uh, they understood that the Messiah would come before the scepter departed from from Judah. So in 7 AD, this weird thing happened where the rabbis went through the streets crying and tearing their clothes and weeping because they believed that God didn't keep this verse, prophecy. Why in 7 AD did they do that? Because the Romans took away the right of Israel for capital punishment in 7 AD. This, Rome was just kind of taking over, all right? And this marked the event where Rome was just, we are totally in control. You are not sovereign anymore. And the rabbis took that very seriously and are like, God has failed us. They saw that as the end of their sovereignty. But they didn't know, these priests, these rabbis, that Shiloh was there, wasn't he? Well, they were ignoring him. He was there. You know, it's funny. The only story we have about Jesus growing up was from when he was 12. And what happened? He's in the temple asking questions to who? The priests, the scribes, the Pharisees. And they're amazed at his wisdom. All right? Well, he was born in 3 or 4 BC, which would put him 12 at the time of this announcement. So here you have Shiloh was there. He even presented himself to the priests and the Pharisees. And yet they turn around and are weeping for God not keeping his promise when God did keep his promise. The problem is they were not expecting the the younger. They were not expecting a humble, weak, lowly child. Look at verse 11 again. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. The donkey and the vine speak of Jesus purchasing property to make it his own. What they would do if, they, if you purchased a vine in a field, you would tie your donkey to it and somehow that meant you owned it. I don't understand their culture. But that's how it worked. So all of this is related to the redemption and Jesus' work that he would accomplish on the cross. He was buying back the vine that his father owned. The, The plant that his father cared about, us, 
Jesus was buying them back. And it just so happens that they grew a lot of grapes for wine, in, for wine excuse me, in the land of Judah also, if you look at the actual nation of Israel. Uh, we could meditate a lot on these verses and spend a lot of time. There's a lot more there. Obviously, the blood and the wine and the blood of the wine and the whiteness of teeth and all that all speak of Jesus, but I'm going to let you guys investigate that on your own and just spend some time for you guys. We need to move on here. Next, we have the Jews rejecting him. Verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell by the, heaven, by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So here we have all this talk about ships, and this speaks of an exiled people. They get shipped out. They get shipped out all across the world. The Romans took care of this in 40 years after Jesus in 70 AD uh, when they kicked out all Jews out of the nation of Israel. Kicked them out, shipped them out. And they didn't even call it the land of Israel anymore. They called it Palestine to erase even the memory of the people of God. You might think that's the end of the story, but it's not. Let's look at verse 14. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between two burdens. And he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. Again, very difficult to interpret. I'll give you some, some help here. So the Jews go out throughout the whole world. They're still as stubborn as donkeys. They still reject Jesus as the Messiah, yet they seem to be blessed wherever they go. That's the, the load on their back is actually a load of blessings that God gives them. Because of their prosperity, they end up being persecuted through many places in the world. Uh, and they've been wandering for the past 2,000 years, getting exploited as servants. So that's what this part is about. Now verse 16, Dan shall judge his people and one of the, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper on the path, a bite that bites the horse's heels so that the river shall rider shall fall backward. I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. This is a poisoned people, a poisoned people. A snake comes. So now we fast forward through the 2,000 years of their wandering. God brings them back into the land of Israel, which we see now. And then we have something called the rapture where the church is taken away. And then the first thing that happens after the rapture, Jesus says in Matthew 24, also Revelation tells us in chapter 6, is the Antichrist comes on the scene and says, hey, everybody calm down. Everybody calm down. This is the snake. Many believe, because of this verse, that he will actually come from the tribe of Dan, that he will be Jewish. We learn a lot about him later in the book of Daniel and in Revelation, but the Antichrist will rock the nation of Israel because he tricks them with his venom. He poisons them. He says right in the middle here, he says now, I have, verse 18, he says, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. I have waited for your salvation. At this point, Jacob, he's so close to death, he calls out the name of God's salvation. And the name that he says here, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. The Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua. So Jacob is actually calling out the name of Jesus. And saying, Jesus, save us. As a people, this Antichrist is going to be a big problem. Jesus, we need you to come back. So now we see, verse 19, a persecuted people again. 
Verse 19, Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last. So here we have Antichrist fighting against Israel in the tribulation. During the first three and a half years, he's going to be kind of peaceful with them. But at the middle of the three and a half years, you have the abomination of desolations, which is when he comes into the temple. He declares himself to be God and demands to be worshipped. And Israel says, no, we only worship God. And he says, fine, I'm going to kill you all. And so they flee and they're hid in the rock city in Petra. But Israel will be saved in the end. Now look, verse 20 is a protected people. Bread from Asher shall be rich, and you shall yield royal, and he shall yield royal dainties. So they're going to be fled and taken care of by the king of heaven. They're going to flee to Petra, hidden and provided for with their bread and everything they need. Even the earth swallows up the waters that are coming after them. So they will be provided for and treated as a royal people, even during this time in the tribulation. Now, verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. So after the poison of Antichrist, after they're persecuted, after they're protected, they start preaching. So here you have a preaching people. And we see this in the book of Revelation, that they, there's 144,000 Jews sealed with the Spirit of God, and they're sent out to be preachers in the world, telling people about the good news of Jesus. Then comes the perfect ruler. Verse 22 for 23. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. All Jesus here. At his first coming, he, he made us fruitful. He brought water to our souls. He, he caused us to be like branches abiding in him. We learn about that in John chapter 15. He felt that pain and the hate. And uh, now verse 24, it goes on. That's his first coming, that first section there. Now verse 24, but his bow remained in strength and his arms uh, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone, of Israel, or rock, you could say, by the God of your Father, who will help you, and the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings from heaven above, because of the deep that lies beneath, blessing of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have excelled, and the blessings of my ancestors, up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers." So here we have Jesus returning in power. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus comes back with power, strength. He's a shepherd and a rock with help. All these things that I just mentioned in there, just going down the list and bringing blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And then we see crowns, speaking of Jesus being anointed the king. And it says that he was separated from his brothers. The Jews didn't know it was him until it was revealed to them, till they saw him. Same exactly as his brothers. Didn't know it was Joseph until he revealed himself to them. So now we finally get to verse 27, a victorious people. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. This is talking about the people that reign. The nation of Israel will, will reign. They will get the spoil of all the world who's been killed in all these wars in the Battle of Armageddon. And for a thousand years, called the millennium, they will be overly blessed with abundance. No one will have to ever work. 
All the food will be given free. Everything you ever want is free. No one will even get sick. Jesus will be there healing everybody. It will be amazing. Some people wipe away the Jews with their theology. But we should be praying for them and loving them. This will happen. God is not through with the Jew. If you doubt that, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. He's very clear about his plans for the nation of Israel. This is how you can know. And here's the thing. The reason why we study all this, the reason why we look at the nation of Israel and the Jews is because by studying them, Paul says, this is how you can know that nothing will ever separate you from the love of Jesus Christ. If God still loves the Jews, even though they've been awful, then he still loves you. Accept Jesus Christ, and he loves you. He remains faithless, faithful, even when we are faithless. I know we've gone very long. We have a couple more verses here. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and it is... And this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them and blessed each one according to their blessing. Then he charged them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. In the, ki- in the fi- cave, excuse me, that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. And there they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. Verse 33, And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Which is my, might be how you feel right now about ready to pull your feet up and just die because this has been so long. Just ready to end it all. (laughs) Well, Jacob, he was gathered to his people. And so let's gather with his people now. All around the world, people are taking communion. They are remembering what Jesus did. And as a family, they're gathering together to say it's not about us. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. 